Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and my sports car brother, Graham Goodwin, calling in from the United Kingdom. How is life in the land of dailysportscar.com? It's great, Marshall. It's nice to be home after a week in the south of France. Not the worst place to be, of course, uh, in the, well, just the beginning of spring. But uh, the weather was not very kind to us through most of the week, although beautiful for race weekend for the Michelin Le Mans Cup and then the season opener on Sunday of the European Le Mans Series. But uh, back here in daylight, British summertime, uh, now adjusted on our clocks and looking forward to another 90 minutes of twisk loveliness well you were there in good old france for some sporty car action i was in long beach where imsa held its third round of the season for the weathertech sports car championship as the official chooser of categories (laughs) each week on twist the week in sports cars i ask you fine sir where we should start among the categories that we have created for the awesome questions that have been sent in via social media from our somewhat crazy, kooky listener base. I'm going to mix it up. I'm going to mix it up because I think there's a section of our listenership that don't get enough of our attention. And I think what we should do is maybe 10 minutes at the start with some of our general and fun questions. Then we're going to move on to a bit of a sprint format uh, as is. Uh, perfectly appropriate for IMSA after the Long Beach weekend and then a bit of Weck Asm's uh, Acho and then finish off with some more of our general. How about that? Wow, we're bouncing all over like my personality far <laughs> from linear. All right, well, let's uh, let's get the ball rolling then in general and fun. And shall I pose the first question to you, my friend, or how shall go we kick? It. All righty. Go for it. We're going to go to... Our pal Kiwi Chris1709, who says, We had all these fantastic series to watch last weekend, as well as many other series uh, you don't mention above, but we couldn't watch Super GT. Why? Reading the Daily Sports Car articles, I got confused. Are we blaming JAF? Let's go racing. This Malaysian company who owns the rights, apparently. Help! So, Japan's A number one sports car series. Any insights as to why that was not readily available for Kiwi Chris to possibly consume? Uh, absolutely. And uh, we've also got not dissimilar questions from uh, uh, good chaps Hubcap Motors, Paul Morgan, Andrew Pike, actually asking a slightly wider question about geoblocking. It looks to me to be a bit of a hot mess. And I think, to be honest with you, the. Um, JF uh, have actually just completely misunderstood the scope and scale of the international audience. There's no doubt whatsoever that two factors have come together to two or three factors have come together to grow that community that is now a regular follower of the Super GT Championship. It's one of these unicorn things, isn't it? That we'd all have loved to have followed had there ever been the opportunity to do so. Kudos to that point to Nismo for stepping up and funding the English language coverage we've enjoyed over the last two or three years, initially with Radio Show Limited and latterly with their own uh, production, with Grand Central Productions, uh, Sam Collins and latterly Rob Barth uh, in the chair. Um, And that has been a hugely successful plus. You've then got 
the guys doing the written word and stand up RJ O'Connell, uh, contributor to uh, Delhi Sports Co. his own Super GT World uh, website and others um, for basically unlocking the secrets of Super GT to an international audience. And that's brought big numbers as well. The third factor, of course, is the fact that we've got, as we've always, always had, uh, international drivers taking part in Super GT. But, you know, with absolute respect to the likes of James Roston, for that matter, Jan Martinborough, there's no doubt that actually the arrival last season of Jensen Button, uh, an ex-Formula One world champion, no less, massively increased the level of interest uh, in the championship. And Jensen himself actually helped to fund, in fact, did fund highlights package in English language uh, using my uh, broadcasting colleague, Toby Moody, as the kind of front man for that. Um, all of that came together. That audience is building nicely. And somewhere along the line, someone has dropped the ball here. It partly to do with Nismo uh, pulling out uh, their backing, partly to do, I think, with the fact that it just was not seen as a priority. The answer to the question having spoken to a couple of people directly involved in this shenanigans, is there is work underway to get a solution in place. And it seems that the majority of the people involved in those discussions are confident that a solution can and will be found. We can but hope, because I think that would be a massive miss for those concerned. It, ha- it is certainly fair to say that uh, in some regards – Super GT has been pretty inward looking um, in a way, sort of that DTM has been, but not in terms of the broadcast side. It is effectively a national championship with the potential or the, or the actuality of being uh, having an international appeal. I think Super GT have had a bit of wake up call and answer to a couple of people's questions. Has the kind of polite um, feedback to say, hang on a minute, guys, don't forget us had an impact I genuinely think it has. I genuinely think that the fact that uh, that fans in their droves have gone um, taken to social media to feedback, guys, we love your show. Please, please don't forget uh, our part of it. I think that has had an impact. Will it have an impact on the commercial side of things? I don't yet know. But I think I'd like to say, as someone who does value that championship, thank you for those that actually took up the challenge from RJ and from myself and from others to feedback and feedback politely and positively. Uh, I think that's had an impact. And let's wait and see in the coming days and weeks to see whether or not something can come out the other side. Let's go to, and I can never pronounce this, B-H-T-O-O-E-F-R. I want you to actually give me your thought on how that should be pronounced, Graham, because I'm at a loss. Booty fur. Booty fur? Yeah, booty fur. Okay. We I'm, still- just doing on the, I'm just doing it on the basis of the, uh, the, what was written on the side of my coffee cup um, at <laughs> Starbucks in Avignon. Uh, that, that might well be a kind of French pronunciation that seems to, oddly enough, he's put in some vowels, but um, I presume it's he, uh, that they seem to take out the vowels uh, and put my the letters of my name in a strange way, but somehow Grum, Grum, G-H-R-A-M, sort of works, but Bootifer. We still need an explanation. Please write in and tell us how you <laughs> came up with that. It's pretty awesome. Here's one that's interesting. I might be able to flag this up quickly. We've had yet another sports car race this weekend where rain and a succession of red flags ruined it. There have been questions before about this. So I believe the nature of the tires involved has been brought up in the past. But it's been pointed out that the aerodynamic concepts in modern sports cars are part of the problem, too. 
Nowadays, even GT cars are designed around significant amounts of underbody downforce and therefore have to be low to the ground. This has also compromised the design of some cars, the Porsche 911 having to go to a mid-engine to make room for a diffuser being the most infamous example. Is it time to rethink modern GT aero and use regulations to ensure sufficient ground clearance to handle standing water safely? I'll admit that this isn't necessarily appropriate for prototypes, but there are plenty of sports car series that are all GT after all. Interesting point. I would just say that re-engineering an entire style of sports car racing to handle the somewhat infrequent uh, arrival of rain, truly rained out series. Um, I think that might be a stretch. I think that might be trying to solve something that happens on a limited basis and redoing everything to account for something that doesn't happen all that often. And I'm just speaking in very general terms. Uh, that to me would seem to be a very bizarre way to approach, uh, to approach things. Now, granted, if we're talking about a particular domestic GT championship that happens to be, it's just raining all the time. I would say that would be a perfect idea to consider. But if we're talking about just a general approach to GT racing being altered in the off chance that rain is the thing that marks the entire event, you know, we get one or two, maybe three at most rain races per year. If I'm thinking Graham and IMSA and out of the 10, 11, 12 times, uh, the cars are on track. Um, I'm just trying to think of the majority here. Also outside of just ride height to accommodate for rain, we know that the lower a car can be, the lower its center of gravity, the better it is going to perform. So it's not just a case of the car being low for the sake of maximizing underbody aerodynamics. Uh, every car, every GT touring car, you name it, I have worked on, owned, entered, etc. Um, most had minimal, if almost just zero underbody downforce that does not and did not impact the fact that uh, my efforts to get that sucker as low as I could uh, to actually improve its cornering capabilities. That's just standard practice. So I think the answer here is might be something worth considering if we're talking about the Malaysian GT series and it's just in a constant tropical rain shower or similar, but uh, worldwide, I can't see how any manufacturer would sign off on fundamentally altering uh, the handling of their cars to accommodate for the somewhat infrequent uh, rain race that might limit their ability to run as hard as they want due to lowered ride height, etc. So that one, uh, get the idea, just not sure it's a starter. Where should we go next, sir? Let's have a quick look a bit further down. It's uh, a quick key read, Chris Wrong. It's an easy one to answer. It asks on GT Racing, specifically a couple of things. Some Monza Blompan Endurance started its season over the weekend. Another one with very mixed conditions. Where is the McLaren? Surprised no one's running it in the Blompan Endurance Series. Is there an issue with the other service here? Just time constraints. Um, the answer is pretty simple. Um, McLaren, I believe, had a potential customer for the Blompan Endurance Series, but that just did not come off. Um, the McLaren is, of course, running elsewhere. 
Uh, we've seen the announcement last week that uh, Mika Hakkinen will be joining the grid for the Suzuka 10 Hours. So that should make three McLarens in the Suzuka 10 Hours. In addition to Kazimichi Goh's two new cars, uh, we've got three McLarens in the International GT Open, Europe's other uh, major uh, all GT uh, series. We've got one that will be gracing the grid of the British GT Championship that gets underway for the first time this season, this weekend um, at Ulton Park. We've had one that's already won a race in Australia and we've got one in Blancpanesia. I think I said, was it last week, MP, that I was at the factory uh, just last week, actually the week before last, apologies, yeah. uh, and, and cars 9 to 11 were in build, 9 almost completed, um, and with certainly 12 ordered. Uh, and my guess is that that will not stop there. Uh, there comes a point, you know, when you can't deliver cars for competition for a season where you'll start to see things tail off. But I think they're in pretty good shape. Uh, is Blompan a gap? It most certainly is. They can be very well aware of that. I'm sure the guys are working hard uh, to find uh, a solution for it. But uh, there's certainly no problem uh, on that front with the competitiveness of the car um, or indeed of the uh, the order book whether or not they can actually find a solution to getting a car on the grid for Blancpain, well, I think we'll probably know uh, later this year. Over oh, to you. Over to me. Oh, it's such a You're so polite. I mean, of the many attributes we love about you. Uh, let's see. <laughs> We're just, we got a, well, as usual, we have so many awesome things here uh, to choose from. Uh, let's see. We'll go to Bucksock, who says, Marshall, you seem to dislike people talking about a, quote, front splitter and things similar <laughs> to that. I can understand what you mean with your arguments, but isn't it easier to understand for new fans this way when they're talking about a certain part of the car and maybe the fans are inclined to look up to look it up afterwards? Yeah, um, you. Yeah, yeah, you exclusionist. Yeah. No, Boo. I know. It, I mean, maybe. I just figure if you speak about something accurately and correctly from the outset, then people will know what they're looking for. Uh, there's no... No, no Marshall. Marshall, sorry, no, you've got to get a, get to a go and sit down quietly and think about what you've done. Think about them. Yeah. Think of the children. Think of the children. I know, I know. It's I actually, am... in fairness, it's a, it's a fair point. And it's a fair point. I'd like a bit of feedback, actually, here, because there's another question a little later on, uh, before you get into this, about whether or not anybody would value a bit of a 101 on some of the, the weirdness of the sports car racing. I have considered um, sitting down and writing something. There's a question uh, a little later here, which I'll answer right now, which is what is the difference between NFI Blancpain GT3 and a VLN SP9, for instance? And it is one of those nuances, isn't it? Well, now, actually, this year, there is a difference. The difference is they're 5% less power in the SP9, but it's exactly the same car otherwise. Um, but... It's a fair question. How do you build the audience if the rule book is as complex as it actually is and the technology and the technical side of things are as complex as they actually are? And without the resource that sits behind the mammoth that is something like Formula One, where we're just battered by technical uh, jargon uh, for something like F1, it's, it's a fair point. Yeah, I just I try not to be super pedantic guy, but. This is just something that continually frustrates me, and it's just me, not saying it's anyone else. Uh, it, it's like my love of the expression, me personally. You just go, well, 
<laughs> covered that with me. There's no person. There's no need for a personally or vice versa. You could say personally, I don't like it. You don't need to say me personally. You're it's a pure redundancy. The same thing here. Uh, I again, I'm just explaining this. So I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, although I obviously think I'm right. Um, there's no need to say front splitter. There's only one splitter. It happens to be at the front of the car. So if you're describing parts on the car, do you say the front windshield? No, there's one windshield. It's at the front of the car. There's no need to say front windshield. Uh, the front wiper blades. No, the wiper blades are at the front of the car. There's no need. Again, so this to me falls along the same lines. So if we're talking about educating someone about any things that are unique to a vehicle, I would just say that accurately describing them without some sort of silly redundancy, it's actually maybe the best way. So folks get it correctly the first time. Uh, we get this in open wheel racing a lot where folks describe the front nose. <laughs> and that, I mean, I always just either laugh or pound my head against the table and say, really? Do we need to tell someone there's a front nose? Most people can discern the fact that they've never seen a rear nose on any living creature, on anything, much less a racing vehicle. So do we you're need look, to say... You're, debate, you're looking at the wrong specialist websites, that's all I can say. Well, fair point. I better, the dark web might have those things for me. So I get your point. I just, I'm one of those people who says, why not tell folks... Why not give folks the accurate thing up front so they know what it is? There's no rear splitter. There's no front. Uh, there's no front rear bumper. There's the, there is now, if you have two of something, that's great. Front bumper, rear bumper, but there's no need to call out things that are truly unique in their position. So again, that's just my mindset. Uh, we don't call out the, front windshield because we know there's only one windshield why call out front splitter when there's only one splitter it's that fair. simple mindset fair enough Moving um on. By, the, by the way it was jonathan Grabowski that asked the question about the sp9 um versus uh gt3 thank you for that one jonathan but let's move on from accuracy to Acura, and let's move on to imsa we've oh, had our 10 minutes look at that little hey, that's a smoother than whipped cream a beautiful sagui also a segue i think um, I'm going to just serve these up like some kind of frenetic Roger Federer robot. Well, hold on. You... Did we officially move to IMSA? Did you say yeah, we that? Did. Because if you, well, just you said... said we're going to Acura, but did you say we're moving to IMSA? I, I, there might be a penalty involved here. There might be a fine. There's a BOP. We're edging into pedantry here. <laughs> <laughs> what the balance oh, of pedantry? What? Right, IMSA. IMSA, that's it. And break. IMSA. Tom Bacon asks, ask you, Marshall Pruitt. Me? After str yes, after struggling at Sebring, what was the catalyst for Acura Team Penske's resurgence at Long Beach? Well, I just mentioned the three most hated letters on this show. Uh, we could say that balance of performance was certainly something that seemed to be recognized as maybe not being totally in their favor, leaving sebring and so at least in conversation other than looking at the bop tables myself at least in conversation with folks from other non-accurate air x05 teams tom they seem to think that those cars should have converted uh 
pole position into a fairly easy one-two victory. Uh, yeah, and there's also a post Long Beach fear that without a BOP change going into the next round at Mid Ohio in a couple of weeks, that we are going to see those cars absolutely walk away from everybody else. So that's not that's not diminishing the hard work put in by Acura Team Penske, but the the BOP baton of favor gets passed around from team to team throughout the year. Uh, let me I apologize from manufacturer to manufacturer throughout the year. So there are some events where we say, boy, Mazda should own this. The Nissan should absolutely walk the field. Cadillac, etc., etc. Uh, Long Beach definitely looked like it should have been Acura's victory and uh, Mid Ohio, where they won their first race in the series last year could be a repeat without a BOP adjustment based on a fair amount of feedback from their competitors. For, yeah, cynicism alert, Acura favored in Acura sponsored event. Shock. <laughs> um, for moving on, um, Kevin Payne asks, do you foresee IMSA expanding its reach overseas apart from the mon entries or would they leave the international series to the likes of SRO and the FIA WEC absolutely not Kevin <clears throat> and I apologize I picked up a little something uh, at Long Beach that I'm trying to get out of my throat but it won't um, I don't see that happening at all Kev I really don't knowing how every team that I can think of in IMSA even the manufacturer entries speak about budgets and really being stretched as far as they're comfortable and going. Adding an international component, uh, boy, uh, I think that would just be super prohibitive. The only caveat is when those things happen uh, on most occasions, there's some sort of agreement between the series and the promoter of that international event travel for the vehicles will get covered sometimes for the teams so uh there's <clears throat> a minimization of the costs to the teams attending those international events so that might might ease that part to some degree would also say that where there's another significant challenge to concern significant challenge here that is a concern barring allowance of uh, imsa's cars or entire series taking part at the 24 hours of le mans pretty much anywhere else they might go there's just going to be more or less no marketing value granted if it was a race in japan possibly uh mazda acura and uh, nissan through the core team might be rather excited but again just as a whole for team spending, for teams with sponsors. We hear that a lot in other series. We hear IndyCar teams say, hey, you know, the last international event they had was in Brazil. And while there were some Brazilian drivers and they're very popular and so on, you had a lot of teams who said, hey, I can't sell that race. My sponsors don't have a real footprint in Brazil. And so therefore, they don't really want to, looking at the annual budget, they've said, hey, that one's up to you to find with someone else. And I can just remember hearing from many teams saying, hey, do you know anybody? <laughs> you know anybody wanting to spend like 50 grand to be on the car, which is a drop in the bucket, uh, just because there was no real interest in funding that. So between cost to the teams, Kev, and also the potential minimal uh, if not just abs complete absence of value to sponsors, I just 
can't foresee IMSA trying to go beyond its uh, United States and Canadian footprint. I'm going to move to a question from Mike Stoops. Now, Mike asked the question. I'm going to slightly alter here. Why do the IMSA GTD cars not race at the Grand Prix Long Beach? Is it cost? Is there no room? It would help the show if they were there, especially for next year, if the GTLM field gets smaller. And let's go on to say that. What do you think, Marshall? If the GTLM field does get smaller, should there be a rethink? Absolutely. I believe there were 19 cars on the entry list. And while that number seemed nice and compact, I believe that's in the general minimum number zone that uh, Long Beach tends to want for a championship to compete. I think I might have mentioned this a year ago or so on, on an episode of Inside, uh, Inside, good Lord, The Weekend Sports Cars, where I believe it was 2009, maybe? The 2009 ALMS race at Long Beach, uh, Don Panos had to come out of pocket to put a couple of extra um, Esperante GT2s uh, into the field because without them, they would have actually dipped below the minimum number necessary in their contract with the uh, with the Grand Prix Association. That was right after the big uh, financial collapse in 2008, but definitely that kind of that number 18 i believe is the minimum number i've heard i don't know if it's still accurate today but uh back to your point mike uh yeah i would say if that there is a reduction in gtlm numbers next year it would certainly be something for them to consider granted uh could you boost and get over that 18 threshold get into the 20-ish or so or low 20s by adding in LMP2, again, we'll have to see. There's only two full-time cars right now. But uh, could that be a way to do it in place of GTLM? Possibly. Uh, the reason that they stripped uh, Long Beach was just trying to bring down costs for GTD. Uh, it has certainly become vastly expensive, far more than anyone anticipated. So trying to limit a long haul for many teams across the country to the West Coast. Uh, make That would be two trips, knowing that we will be coming back here in September for the Monterey round. Uh, that was, to, I think, a very smart move on IMSA's part to try and uh, curb costs and such. Also, there's definitely some mayhem um, at the hands of some Pro-Am drivers in GTD in the past at Long Beach. Uh, we'll also say, Graham, that you know, pretty pretty fun to see last weekend where it was all pro, DPI, and GTLM, the best of the best. And they still found walls, and they still spun, and they still did all <laughs> kinds of things. So whatever theory that if you strip away the pro-am, the non-pros, boy, the racing's going to get better and there'll be less mayhem. There wasn't as much mayhem as we've seen in the past, but there was still a surprising number of mistakes. So, um, yeah, I guess that argument, Mike, of, well, you know, we, we don't want this to be a, a yellow fest or, or red flags and such. It wasn't, you know, there was some merit to that, but, uh, again, even some of the best displayed a little bit of uh, iffiness uh, throughout the weekend. But it'll be interesting to see if and what they come up with if we do have this cut down of GTLM uh, numbers overall. 
Uh, we've got a, three questions I can band together here, really. They're, they're not quite the same, but there's a sort of common theme throughout them. Lance Snyder uh, asks about LMP2 if it doesn't pick up in the next couple of years. What looks to be a new DPI formula in 2022? Might the series allow the Gen 1 DPIs to run as a class in IMSA competition? A Simtech 1 asks how can the LMP2 DPI split and the seeming failure of the LMP2 class in the IMSA be fixed? Could a halfway measure such as limiting DPI development in something and removing some spec regs for LMP2 while running IMSA fix it? Would the IMSA be allowed to do that? An Irish Tiger 89 says with the limited number of OEMs willing to sell their DPIs, the struggles that Peter has seen this year, why hasn't IMSA worked with Orica and Gibson, for instance, to develop an upgrade kit that would allow the Orica 07 to be competitive in the DPI class? Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I guess if we look at... How about it, the Gen 1 DPI question first? Yeah. I mean, there to me, there's possibly something there. Um... What I'm not totally sure about is whether we would be in a position where there's a need for IMSA to either make use of the first-gen DPIs and have those as something that could become you know, the equivalent uh, of LMP2, what we have now. Uh, we do expect the new DPIs to be faster, meaner, better, and whatnot than first-gen cars, so I think just performance separation would be a natural thing. Um, could that, again, could that be an interesting way for uh, some teams to recoup some money by being able to sell their used first-gen DPIs? Yeah, I like that. I absolutely like that idea. What I don't know, and what we won't know until we get a better feel, uh, Graham, for where, if and where this LMP2 class is or is not headed is is there a reason to keep the thing afloat going into 2020 obviously you've got the pr1 matheson team that has invested you also have uh bren o'neill and the performance tech team that has invested you've got a couple of entrants who have spent the money and you know ha have decided to go all in it's just two full-time cars though do you is there a reasonable expectation there will be more coming next year in the in the years beyond to keep that open there's the other aspect too of obviously at the big races at daytona and sebring in particular maybe a little bit at petit Le Mans if there isn't a uh, clash with the WEC or elms could there be some international uh friends that come over to play with their p2s if those things seem reasonable, then I would see a value in keeping the LMP2 formula moving forward. But if IMSA just does not get the feeling that there is such a thing, yeah, I like the idea of, in a couple of years, when the Gen, uh, Gen 2 DPIs arrive, I do like the idea of hopefully passing on the first Gen cars and that effectively replacing LMP2 if it's just not going anywhere. I also like the idea that's been floated about, hey, could IMSA work with the two brands that have the most uh, the, the most representation? I know you mentioned Eureka and Gibson also throw in Lige, knowing that while there aren't any running an LMP2 now, I know that PR1 Matheson still has theirs, which could be rolled out. Those two are by far the most common ones, but 
the thought of IMSA working with uh, Areca and Liget and Gibson to, you know, bring those cars up to competitive speeds with DPIs, I think that's brilliant. I really do. Um, the whole balance of performance thing, uh, yeah, uh, this is just a weird thing, Graham. And we, we've spoken about this a number of times before, so I don't want to get back into the full conversation. But IMSA saw the possibility for P2 to take off. They received a fair amount of input from teams that, yeah, we're going to come in, we're going to do something. A lot of those plans changed after IMSA announced they were going to separate DPI and P2. Now we're at this awkward place where there's two P2s uh, trailing around the country, kind of having their own fight. Um, Really, between themselves, we have not seen the LMP2s really part of any of the major fights going on up front. We've obviously also seen that there's been some, you know, performance separation between DPI and P2, but they've just been non-factors altogether. We haven't really seen, Graham, the one thing we've hoped for is the the PR1 Matheson team and Performance Tech just having a knockdown, drag-out fight, you know, wheel-to-wheel. Granted, we're talking a 24-hour race and a 12-hour race, so those uh, might not be perfect windows for that, but we're certainly hoping that as we get to some of the shorter races that those two entrants are able to at least have a good fight among themselves because if they can't if they don't if one car is breaking the other one's crashing and it's kind of one team more or less locked in for the win yeah the people paying to be in those cars might be happy to get a trophy but that's not going to sustain their interest for very long so there's some real questions here uh, that imps is going to need to answer and the biggest one which i don't have an exact Answer two is since P2, or whatever we want to call the class below the the all-pro DPIs, is meant to be a place where teams and drivers develop themselves before they hopefully step up and can buy a DPI and fight for the overall win. If that's not working, if that thing's broken, and it's kind of broken right now, that concerns me. When you don't have a meaningful class where pro-ams up and coming, not quite ready for primetime teams and drivers can learn and develop and get ready. If that's gone, yeah, I know that IMSA has their LMP3 class, but that still doesn't seem like exactly the right place to uh, get ready for real hardcore weather tech championship competitions. So there's some big questions here, brother, other than just how are they going to get more cars? Absolutely. Let's uh, run through a couple of uh, questions around events that actually happened on track at the Long Beach Grand Prix uh, last weekend. Alex O'Bara, uh, Sean Caldwell and Walter Ritchie all asked questions around um, various drivers hitting the pit limiter button coming out of the hairpin. Alex says with the problems the then leading 4GT had coming out the hairpin, is the location of the pit limiter button something that's mandated by IMSA, FIA, Sierra, the manufacturer's decision? Um, And Walter and Sean Caldwell uh, also uh, point out that uh, Elio Castroneves hit neutral of the hairpin, gave up two positions, uh, so others bump the pit limiter. Can we talk about the button layout? 
Yeah, that was certainly a <laughs> that was certainly a topic that influenced the outcome of the Bubba Burger Grand Prix. What an interesting name for an event. The Bubba Burger Grand Prix. Very American. Um Yes, indeed. Yeah, so the button layout's an interesting thing. There's a couple adjustments I would expect to come out of this event. Uh first of all, there's no mandating of you must have a pit speed limiter button to my knowledge it's just one of those practical things you would not want a driver to have to manage on their own knowing it would be very easy to run afoul of the uh the maximum pit speed and therefore get a penalty so uh yeah gonna need them going to want them etc uh what i would expect to come out of the event on the ford side on the Acura side hopefully every single team uh, would look at is there some sort of cover we can put over uh, the buttons that can either engage pit speed limit or throw it into neutral uh, without our absolute explicit desire to do so effectively having to flip open um, a little you know plastic or similar window that covers it i guess like in every kind of disaster end of the world movie where the you know the bad guy flips open the thing so it can press the uh the the doomsday button kind of thing that's the one thing that comes to mind <clears throat> the other idea that i had and i believe this should be capable but of course nothing's ever 100 percent bulletproof graham but knowing how gps based data and information is such a prevalent thing in motor racing i would think in terms of lockouts and such um, it might be possible through the use of gps uh, for the potential to activate um, in particular the the pit lane speed limiter i'm not so much sure about neutral because that might be needed if you have a spin or otherwise on track but uh, let's just say only for the pit lane speed limiter to effectively map out through gps hey <laughs> unless you are within you know 20 feet of pit lane entry and uh you know 100 feet past pit lane exit or p pick whatever the number is um you can press this button all day long and it's not going to do a darn thing so something that basically eliminates uh its function unless you're within a narrow defined band uh, through GPS on the track where there would be an actual need to activate it. So that might be the kind of big brother uh, Skynet becoming self-aware solution. And uh, the other one might just be as simple as placing some sort of protective cover over it that you have to slide up or move and then hit. So uh, knowing that 99% of the time drivers know when they need to hit the pit speed uh, limit button uh, there should in theory be more more than enough time to slide that uh, protective device out of the way in order to do that excellent stuff a couple of other points this is around the way in which the racing emerged and also the way in which some of that racing was managed. The brilliantly named, when we're talking about his uh, street race, Mark Urban, says, gentlemen, there was quite a bit of beating and banging at the Long Beach Emsa race, obviously. Uh, what are your opinions of what we saw for the drivers in terms of the, aggress the aggressive nature of the race? Did they go over the top or is this just part of a rare 100-minute sports car race on a tight street circuit? Hashtag me personally, I loved it. Like vintage NASCAR on a road course reminded uh, Mark of Robbie Gordon versus Kurt Busch at Watkins Glen in 2006. Separate points, but actually not dramatically uh, unconnected. Uh, John Sable 
says, were the local cautions for cars in the tyres in the race good enough? Always understand the race director's motivation for keeping the race moving, but it really made for some sketchy moments. Yeah, so to the first question, I would say, Mark, for sure, it is a natural part of an incredibly short race on a street course where, uh, barring a bunch of yellows, a bunch of crashes, as as John mentioned, unless there's a lot of stoppages, uh, or, or pauses, I should say, to create the opportunity for fun, for jumping one another on the start, restarts, uh, pit strategy options and such, you, for the most part, don't have a lot of time. Uh, there's no There's no time for patience in a 100-minute race, and that's actually kind of the fun i think of long beach it's hey <laughs> you gotta go like heck uh any of the pleasantries and uh, any of the gentlemanly and gentlewomanly driving that we might see at other races yeah it's not happening here even detroit which is longer you still have that sense of nope uh this place can be an absolute procession because of the rather narrow walls uh, or the narrow width of the track all the reasons that we know can make street racing somewhat not awesome uh there just seems to be a greater sense of urgency to go forward and if that going forward involves bumping and banging uh, that, that just seems to be par for the course. Also, in many cases, I would say, Mark, the speed differentials uh, play, certainly play a factor here, where there are points definitely at Long Beach going to turn one, going to a couple of corners where drivers are, are at a high rate of speed. But for the most part, a uh, little bit of uh, Calvin Fish's favorite RG bargy it's going to happen second, third gear, fourth gear at most at most of the corners. Therefore, the real risk of a high, super high speed shunt and crazy damage would happen to be lower. The same kind of, of body rubbing and, and panel banging going into turn one at Road America, for example, it would not just simply would not be accepted knowing that both cars would still be in outer space waiting to come back down <laughs> due to the high rate of speed. So yeah, it's kind of a perfect collision of circumstances and yeah, I, I love it. I think it's great. I mean, what's better than seeing these priceless supercars and prototypes coming back, looking like they were in a, a Saturday night, you know, uh, short oval, uh, dirt race in the middle of Kentucky somewhere. So yeah, I guess I'm, maybe I'm a little bit weird, but, uh, I do like that just a little bit. Uh, another quick combination question. This is about the choices of strategy that a couple of the teams made. One from Walter Ritchie, again, who says, uh, do we think we'll see issues this season with the Penske Acuras being too aggressive on tie wear? He says Ricky Taylor is very close to the five caddy at Long Beach. If he hadn't needed a pair of tyres and only taken one like the Cadillac, could that have given him a win? Jerry Roberts Sudduth, meanwhile, talks about the Fords, the Chip Ganassi Fords, Daring with their strategy at both Long Beach and Daytona seems not to have panned out either time, uh, either time for them. Is it a testament to the close competition of the class? They're trying to get an advantage they can, uh, any advantages they can, or are they attempting to overcome something with the car? I think in the, the case of Ford, you know, we're looking at, A, how close the class is, but also with two entries, the thoughts of splitting strategy certainly would come to mind. Uh, if we look at what happened with the 
highest qualifying Ford, the one driven by our friend, Monsieur French Fry, Sebastian Bourdais. Uh, Seb qualified fourth. Uh, they ended up having a, they ended up hitting and then having a perfectly timed yellow come out where that thrust them into the lead. The Porsches were just, I would say, too darn fast on their own. Obviously, Dirk Mueller hitting the pit lane speed limiter by mistake helped the, uh, the winning car driven, or at that point driven by Earl Bamber to move ahead, but I still think that was going to happen regardless. So, you know, uh, just keep in mind that all the context we just saw, very short race. Clearly, the Porsches were the class of the field. The Fords, I believe, qualified fourth and eighth out of eight cars or something like that. They were not as sharp as they had hoped. Yeah, you are certainly going to try some strategy-based fun to overcome some of the deficiencies. As for Daytona, I have to raise my hand and admit I'm not really remembering the scenario there you're referring to. Not So that's not questioning it, just saying I don't remember. So uh, I'll just have to go with what comes to mind for Long Beach. Uh, we'll start to wind down on the IMSA front so with a couple of questions away from Long Beach. After this one, Nate Detweiler says, rumours that Los Angeles Angels might build a new stadium on part of the current circuit. What track would you most like to see IMSA visit if Long Beach drops off the schedule? Hmm. Boy, where do they not go that I would love to see them visit? Wow, that's actually, this is just a retro one, and it's silly because that's one of my specialties, but having attended the Del Mar Grand Prix in kind of sort of San Diego, so further south in Southern California. Is that uh, a town name? Kind of uh, somewhere. Yes. Uh, Del Mar, uh, there, there was a, quote, street race. It was run in and around the Del Mar horse racing fairgrounds. Uh, was a site of some pretty awesome IMSA races back in the 1980s. I think it extended into the very early 90s, maybe 91, 92. But it was, it was a blast. And, yeah, the tracks may be a little bit tight compared to today's standards for a street course. But, yeah, I mean, that... That maybe stands out as a, well, if Long Beach were to ever go away, how could we keep the the series in the same general area and put on something fun that we've at least seen work in the past? That stands out. I mean, after that, boy, where should IMSA go that it does not go where it's been in the past? I mean, there's obviously a lot of great circuits we spoke about this last week which again maybe it's a another pacific northwest thing if by chance it happened to if long beach did go away then i would say that should automatically make portland uh the default replacement for it knowing that they are trying to resuscitate portland international raceway as a marquee joint that once held GTP races and ALMS races, and at least based on the turnout for the return of IndyCar in September, or I think over Labor Day weekend last year, Graham, it's a lot of folks who were really wanting them to come back, really happy that they did, and you know the crowd wasn't gigantic, but it was incredibly promising. Gave me every reason to believe that uh, there's there's something positive happening. So. I'd say Portland, uh, something staying on the West Coast, something that has worked in the past, 
that would be the one I would go to for sure. And as we said last week, if the crowds continue to be absolutely tiny, as they've been at Monterey, that might become a decision IMSA makes sooner than later, regardless of where Long Beach Mm. happens to stand. I'm going to tell you you're wrong. I think there's a massive miss there, Marshall. It's not like you to miss the opportunity, the commercial opportunity, uh, to go and have a street race in Las Vegas. And uh, I think we should do the Diamonds of Forever uh, Grand Prix uh, down Fremont Street. Uh, You must, at some point, go on two wheels through a very narrow street, emerging at the other end with one of the most famous uh, mistakes in cinema history, emerging on the other end on the opposite wheels that you started down that uh, that alleyway, uh, as uh, James Bond uh, most certainly did in that uh, fantastic movie. Wouldn't that be cool, though? Street race in Las Vegas. Wow. Well, and you've also brought a little bit of Days of Thunder and or Fast and Furious to it. Leave it to you to come up with a great (laughs) option with Graham Goodwin. Right. We're going to finish off with him, sir, for the moment. Uh, We've had uh, uh, a a listener with the surname Urban. We're now going to go to one with the surname Metropolis, albeit with a slightly Greek uh, take on the Metropolis side. Michael Metropolis says, now the C8 Corvette is official for 2020 with a July date for the unveiling of the road car. Any clues on what we uh, we might start to see uh, around the C8R emerging and what it might test on track, MP? So if I remember, I believe the date I saw on the side of that was July 18th for the unveiling. I think that's correct. Yeah. So my thoughts on, or my thoughts, I think last week on how Le Mans would be the obvious place to discuss discuss such things. Uh, again, that might be a little bit hard uh, since the car's formal debut is, is coming roughly a month after uh, the 24 hours. So I, yeah, boy, it, it's hard for me to suggest exactly when and where because maybe again i'm I'm just missing something exceptionally obvious but the july 18th date does not stand out to me there must be some sort of you know auto show or something show uh coming that i'm that i'm just not aware of what's on the calendar i mean if we look at in terms of what IMSA has, uh, we know that July 20th is the uh, the Northeast Grand Prix, the GT only, GTLM and GTD uh, WeatherTech Sports Car Championship race at Lime Rock Park in Connecticut. But that too, although we'd love it and it's amazing, that seems like it'd be a weird place to do anything there. So I'm, well, I'm at a bit of a loss as to the when, where and how. I do hope that in addition to the road car being confirmed and unveiled and all of those things, that in all of that, there's some sort of racing component included in it. I don't know if they will choose to attach that, Graham, to that event uh, and also do the racing side or if that would be something that follows a few hours later or the next day, etc. But yeah, I dates and timing, at least I'm not 100 percent clear on the strategy here. But that should be a mystery to y'all, because you know I live in a rather permanent state of befuddlement. Um, what it's if- an odd, th- it's yeah. an odd thing, isn't it? Because there are different ways in which organisations, or that matter, individuals decide to strategize about these things. You see, some that it's a new car and the race car immediately together, and putting all their collateral out there. Others, 
will launch the road car and then days, weeks, months later, we'll launch the road program, the race program. It could be Petit Le Mans. It could be. It could be months later. There's no reason for that race car to be out in the public domain other than, you know, clearly they're looking to not that they've done a particularly great job of it, uh, other than they're looking to reduce the impact of spy shots of their uh, future race program. It's an interesting one. It's good to have the date confirmed. Good to have actually the reality that it's definitely going to be confirmed. Because let's face it, we should not in this day and age assume that something we have seen as a prototype and a spy picture of a car is necessarily nowadays going to make it to the marketplace. So it is therefore very good news to uh, lovers of good GT racing that Corvette has confirmed that we definitely will get the C8. Um, Let's wait to see what happens with the C8R. I've zero doubt it's coming, but it's an interesting uh, proposition as to whether or not it comes on the same day or some, somewhat later. One thing that stands out to me as well, Graham, just a curiosity. We'll obviously learn as to what they've chosen to do here before long, but if you read reactions to what folks have seen with the spy shots of the C8, even the C8R race car on track, and also just the general thoughts of, huh, a mid-engine Corvette, this is going so much against the grain. Part of me wonders if they decide to integrate the race car into the launch to really bolster uh, the looks and appeal and just this overall brand shift uh, of what the new Corvette will happen to be. Uh, I would just say yep. that... There are a lot of Corvette loyalists. Well, are th is there anything but a Corvette loyalist? I've just seen and read a lot of things from folks saying, "Oh, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't look what I had thought it might look like. It's not super pleasing." And or name a mid-engine car that looks similar. Oh, the front looks a little bit like you know an Audi or a Lamb. You know, pick the the front looks like this part the back looks like that part uh it doesn't necessarily stand out as boy something totally brand new and original uh more questions or comments that i've seen saying huh i don't know so again they are obviously not oblivious to those comments so part of me wonders graham if they'll say well what's one way to maybe push this over the top in terms of first impressions and salesmanship when we confirm it all Maybe it's having the race car right there to show that, no, this is racy and this is aggressive and cool and et cetera, et cetera, uh, just to try and push that narrative uh, even harder from the outset. So a uh, little, little curiosity there. I know we wanted to jump into the next category. Let me just grab two more that stand out very quickly in IMSA. Sure. Uh, one comes in from our pal Rob Chalmers, who says, uh, second time I'm throwing this in, he says, uh, what was that? quote, Mazda must deliver by uh, date X you gave us again. I'm just worried we're uh, close and they can't seem to buy luck. Yeah, Rob, uh, I don't know. I should probably write these things down so I remember them. I think it, it, if it wasn't Long Beach, I think it was probably Mid-Ohio, maybe Detroit at the latest, but it was roughly the first half of the season, if not earlier. And yeah, I mean, last weekend sure seemed like a prime opportunity for Mazda to get that first win. More problems and calamity on with the one entry, 
where we had uh, Jonathan Bomarito crashing the number 55, riding off the chassis. The team ended up uh, working effectively an all-nighter to replace that Tub Graham, then had more problems in the race. Um, Yeah, just really tough there. The 77 entry certainly looked very competitive. Tristan Nunez was just on the boil from the outset, so that was great to see uh, when the green flag waved. I thought they would have... I thought they should have had the pace to challenge the Acura's challenge, the number 31 Action Express entry, um, which got into the lead and, and did some pretty impressive stuff. Um, just didn't seem to be there. Seemed like they might have lost out a little bit on one of the pit stops, too. Um, yeah, I, I heard, and I still have to confirm all of this, had heard that Larry Holt was not only on the timing stand, but engineering. Uh, wow. I believe the 55 entry. Yeah, I believe the 55 car uh, as well. When So, yeah, don't don't hold me to that 100%. I was told that by a couple of people very much in the know. And uh, although I saw Larry Thursday night, actually shared a table with him at the RDC dinner, um, did not get a chance to see him and ask him directly, but... Yeah, I don't know, man. I just would love for whatever thing that needs to settle to settle. I'd love to see, and I think I think IMSA fans would like to see Mazda uh, not only get a win, that long overdue first win, but also maybe at Mid-Ohio to just have safe and simple round. Both cars roll out for the first practice. Both cars go into the trailer Sunday night with no crashes. No damages, no misfortune, no strategy mistakes, no driver mistakes. Uh, maybe a podium for one of them, maybe a win. Um, it'd be awesome to see going into the fourth race of the year for IMSA to just roll out, roll home, and nothing other than their performances on track and hopefully a somewhat positive outcome in the race. There's nothing else to talk about because to our, I think, surprise... We haven't had that yet. Even though three races are down already, there has not been the ability to get through a full race, one being 24 hours, one being 12, one being an hour and 40 minutes, where both cars just have drama-free runs. So, um, yeah, whether you're a Mazda fan or not, Rob, I I just, boy, um, it's starting to it's starting to get hard to come up with reasons as to why they aren't succeeding. Uh, And I'll just take this one from Joshua Johnson last to close, Graham, and then we'll go to Weck, Aslam, Elms, Aiko, your specialty. Joshua says, do you think that IMSA will include a provision on how many seasons a manufacturer can run an exclusive deal with a team before making the cars available for other teams who want to run them? Uh, I think I've suggested something similar in the past, Joshua. Uh, but it's hard. <laughs> it would be hard for IMSA to hold the line on this and say, okay, DPI manufacturer, uh, automotive company, you cannot participate in our series unless up front you agree to a multi-year contract that says after pick the number of years, you must make those cars available. Uh, all the brands that are currently competing in DPI thoroughly enjoy it. I don't know if any of them would let a sanctioning body dictate business terms of what they do with their money, 
whether they make their assets available to others. I love the idea. I hate the fact that Acura and Mazda will not sell their cars to others right now. Uh, but that is their prerogative. And you know, if we're just thinking about the size, Graham, of an Acura slash Honda versus what is a rather tiny organization by comparison in IMSA, um, yeah, I don't see how an Acura slash Honda is dictated to by any sanctioning body uh, in order to participate. It, it would be much easier for them to say, cool, thanks, we're out. <laughs> you're not going to tell us what we have to do. These are things that we own. We choose to spend money. If you want to have us, we'd love to be there. But otherwise, you're not getting into our pockets or dictating how we choose to run things. So what you hope, Joshua, is like a Cadillac and like a Liget with the Nissan that they sell. Uh, we did have with Cadillac, there was, call it exclusivity for a couple of years there. They then decided to, instead of just picking the teams they wanted to work with, opened up the books to allow teams that had the means to buy to come in and do so. That's why we have a JDC Miller Motorsports. That's why we have a Home Coast Racing added in uh, this year, which is awesome. Uh, I would also say that you know, although Core is the only team running the Liget, the Onroke, uh, Nissan Onroke, Liege, uh, good Lord, Nissan Onroke DPI right now, yeah, that thing sure has been fast. So I'm surprised that other teams have not stepped up to buy one of those. But ultimately, you would just hope, Joshua, that uh, manufacturers do realize that after that window you speak of, all right, we're going to come in for a couple of years with something new, figure it out on our own, do our own thing. Once we get to a place where we feel we can win, be successful, maybe even earn a championship, then we can spread the love a little bit. That's the hope. Speaking of hope, the great white hope, Graham Goodwin, it's time for me to ah. pipe down and throw lots of questions to you, starting with, hmm, I'm not sure. Where should we start? We'll go with uh, Unagile Cash Django. Yeah. Again, I, we need explanations. No, I know um, this one. You do? You know yes. you know, this fine person who is submitting questions to us? Okay. Uh, we're going to go to uh, the abbreviated UCJ, who says, It's been asked before, but with the ELMS's fine display at Paul Ricard, does anyone really need LMP1? An LMP2 Plus with open engine choice would do just fine. DPI. The 1,000 horsepower days are over. Why this, in my humble opinion, rather anal, politicking around hybrid hypercars that may not show up after all? Inter uh, interesting, and this seems to be a prevailing wisdom as the days go by. Yeah, well, first, unpicking the uh, the puzzle of uh, our good friend on Agile, Cash Janko, that I believe to be an anagram of Johannes Gauklika. Um And I think that's our good mate, Johannes, from uh, from the fantastic country of Austria. Um, I think there needs to be a bit of a timeout with this. It's, it's nonsensical where we find ourselves. I did a lot of sniffing around at Paul Ricard and beyond about what's going on, where, when, and what basically I'm getting back now from uh, those that have answers to the questions is that they don't terribly uh, much have answers to those questions. And we're effectively being told now, stop guessing, start waiting for manufacturers to make those determinations and those decisions. And I think whilst I appreciate that, that's actually quite worrying. 
Um, I think they are genuinely unsure now of what comes next. Uh, we have heard, uh, we heard you in the room together with me when Gerard Nouveau said it, that they do have a plan B, quite exactly what that plan B might be. I think an awful lot of people are trying to guess at the moment. Um, my view is that where I think we're heading for is at least uh, two uh, grandfathered years with the current cars, at least two yeah, grandfathered years with the current cars. Um, I think we are struggling towards a position where there might be a couple of early takers, whether or not we've passed the red line for Toyota and potentially whether or not we might get any combination of Aston Martin and Red Bull, one, other or both. I think is an open question uh, whether or not someone else is in the mix. I've seen um, colleague uh, Gary Watkins' recent uh, uh, story in Autosport that talks about whether or not Ford might go hypercar. I can't for the life of me understand why I've, after all the machinations they might do that with the uh, the Ford GT or a, a hypercar version of that, a, you know, effectively LMP1 spec version of that, that basis. I don't know, is the honest answer. Um, I think we're at a really tricky point. Uh, could some form of open rule book, more open rule book, be part of the uh, the plan B? I sort of hope it is. I've said before on the show, I'll say it again. I think if we've got to the stage where BOP is a strong part of the solution, or rather it's the defining part of the solution, that I genuinely don't see why that shouldn't extend to other more established um, platforms. And yes, I believe that that includes DPI, and I believe it potentially includes something like Class 1 as well. The difficulty is what happens with tyres as well, whether or not you have an open tyre formula or you don't. Um, and I just think we've got to get to the stage where we allow the market to decide what the hell it wants rather than this, frankly, nonsensical quip, you know, kind of squabbling between rule makers and manufacturers as to what is the, the solution. I think if we gave them as close as possible to a corporate run what you brung um, and made it very clear that there are some pretty stringent uh, components to that formula, which have to include that they have to commit those cars to a World Insurance Championship. You know, okay, there's got to be accommodation for IMSA as well, but that that clearly, my view is it would be unacceptable for the World Championship to be a sacrificial lamb here. Um, unless there is a plan B, which I don't believe there is on that front, then I'm of the opinion right now that unless we've got uh, names in the bank, that they are absolutely certain are going to be coming. And I have serious reason to doubt that there are terribly many right now in the early parts of this formula, that it is time to consider uh, what actually moving to balance of performance means in the real world. That means the risks and they are legion, but it also means the opportunities and the opportunities that moving to balance of performance offers could be something of a revelation. Uh, it provides massive challenges, massive challenges, but it does provide opportunities. There are other cars um, manufacturer supported cars that are capable of meeting that level 
of performance, that performance window that's being defined. And does that include Gen 2 DPI? It potentially does. Does it include Class 1? It potentially does. Does it include grandfathered LMP1 cars? It most certainly does. Does it include cars road-based and prototype-based against the regulations that we know the manufacturers now have in their hands? It absolutely does. Time, I'm afraid, manufacturers, to get into the game or tell us tell them that you're not coming so i'm going to in lieu of moving to the next question ask you to climb upon the mighty weekend sports car soapbox something dear listeners we <laughs> might have, we might have stood upon just before we started recording today and ask you graham Piggybacking on what you just said, but maybe a little bit more sharply focused on a topic that is continues to trouble the two of us to a higher degree every week. And that is our friends and they are friends at the ACO and WEC appear to be in a place with their future headlining prototype class in a place where they are seemingly subject to the changing whims or interests of manufacturers who've yet to commit, want to commit, dangling the possibility of committing to hypercar. We seem to be in a place, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and some direction where you think it should follow, on whether the ACO and WC needs to say, stop, we are taking no more phone calls, no more emails, we are publishing the exact rules as we want them to be, and you either need to accept them and join or walk away. Or if you think the ongoing constant change this, change that, what about this, move this thing for us, nature is a representation of the fact that uh, there's these rules might be too far away from what any of those manufacturers want. And so maybe the ACO, instead of saying, stop it, we're jump in or jump out, but no more. Do you think they should either do that? Or do you think they should maybe recognize the constant influx of, could you tweak this? Could you change that? We might be in, but only if you shift this over here instead of there is a signal to the ACO and WC that the rules, this, these just aren't a goer. There's nothing, there's nothing here that can work. Step back, pause and say, Hey, 2020 is off the table. It's going to be 21, 22. Clearly the feedback and the, the mini insurrections on a weekly basis should be received as Nope, we got this one wrong. Don't press forward. Which one of those two? Cause it seems like we need to pick a lane or pick a direction and do it. Uh, right, let's go for it. Um, I think first and foremost, uh, our friends and colleagues at the FI and ACO have been guilty over the last few years of being maybe a little naive in some of the negotiations. I think they've also been misled fairly substantially by some pretty big names uh, out there. Stand up Porsche, who most certainly took them a long way down um, the line of telling them they were committed for a new rule set and then walked away with very limited notice um, towards uh, formulary, etc. And that's part of what we've talked about before on the show, this drive at board level um, and at marketing level uh, for electrification. Uh, stand up to Peugeot, that, that, that frankly on both sides was pretty disgraceful. 
Um, I think everybody's got a good reason to kind of look at their own actions and think, was that really in the interest of anybody at all? Peugeot themselves, and frankly, the rule makers as well, went way too far down the road uh, with the hope and expectation on the part of those behind the rule set for the WEC and the, uh, the Le Mans 24 Hours that Peugeot would stand by um, there stated commitments if we do that if this is achieved and that is achieved we will come and then Persia of course did not come um, beyond that we've got one or two of the current takers in the um, in the uh, the hypercar regulation uh, round robin uh, that frankly have muddied the waters but then are not ready to launch any kind of program if you're going to sit down and change that rule book as fundamentally as it's been changed then for god's sake do so with a program on the table and there's at least one of those manufacturers that fundamentally doesn't have that and i strongly suspect that i know what the game is and i'm going to keep my powder dry until i've actually checked this one out but i'm not a million miles away from going public with what i think is the game with one of those manufacturers um the reality here is this is too valuable an asset in the Le Mans 24 hours in particular to risk putting it into the wilderness for a year or two. Um, I think there are a lot of people trying really, really hard. I'm not absolutely certain they've got enough assets in the current market situation to achieve what they're looking to achieve. The market outside of motorsport across the automotive world is frankly, I think at the moment, as close to chaotic as you can possibly imagine. And the the parts of those organizations that are involved in motorsport are sort of being dragged along in that well, tsunami of, uh, of unrest and rapid change. But yes, I agree with you, MP. I think what needs to happen right now is I think there needs to be a, a very firm red line drawn. My understanding is, if we're not there, we're really very close to that. Uh, here are the uh, regulations, at least in a very advanced draft form that you've asked us to do. They accommodate what you, manufacturer A, and what you, manufacturer B, C, D, E, F, have asked us to accommodate. That's what you've got. Now we're going to wait and you are going to tell us whether or not you're going to commit or not. Frankly, if they're not going to commit, further muddying the waters is just going to make this a hot mess. At that point, you've got to have, beyond your red line, another line. And the other line is the trigger point for whatever plan B is. What might that look like? It might look like what I've described a little earlier. It might look like something that you might want to be doing with your GT cars. I'm not sure that that's anything that really anybody favors. I think it might be something that one or two people might be chucking into the mix as yet more covering fire. I'll be blunt. You wanted a soapbox. Here's my, uh, my soapbox. I'm pretty sick of some of the manufacturers' bullshit on this. The reality here is... You know, if you're going to play brinksmanship, then damn well commit a program or get out of the room. That's the reality here, because all that's happening at the moment is you're pushing back a solution further and further and further to the point where what do you do in that situation? What do you do if you are the ACO, the FIA? You either decide that you're going to put an immovable barrier in the, in, in the way of further negotiation, which could be criticized, or you 
continue to try to negotiate either on an individual or a quorum basis, which is going to get criticised. And at the moment, it's just messy. It's messy administratively, it's messy technically, it's messy commercially, and it's certainly messy in technological terms. And I think we are heading to something which looks like Brexit over 24 hours, a hot mess of unsatisfactory compromise. It needs some shape. Uh, I'm not going to stand here, you know, as a bloke working in office down the bottom of his garden and say my solution is the, the right solution. But frankly, as I sit here, it looks like a better solution than some. Uh, I think we need to be far more wide ranging. I think we need to make clear where the red lines are here. And one of those red lines is, you know, I, I love the idea that the, the IMSA teams might be able to bring their DPIs over for the Le Mans 24 hours. But I'm not prepared to sacrifice a major global championship at that altar. And my view is that that needs to be shaped and it needs to be shaped right now. By all means bring DPI, by all means bring class one. But find some way in which you commit to a more global offering for that technology, for those efforts, for those cars, and do it soon. I love it. Look at that. We got a Brexit reference in there. I mean, we're, we're on the boil. Got about 20 minutes left in this episode, my friend. And knowing that we still have many, many, many WEC, Aslam, Echo, etc. questions. Would, 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 you, would you like me to just run through some of the ones I can see really very quickly? Absolutely. I mean, well, yeah. yeah. Pick and choose well, the ones that stand up. Let's go with Stephen Gates, says, given Roman Bruce and offer stated the arrival of Aurises for the long-term in sports cars, possibly as a hypercar future, is the Cretans to rumour of a link-up with Rebellion. That comes from the uh, the tweeting out by Rebellion of the teaser video from Aris. I sat down at a coffee with a, a brilliant Roman Rusinov, uh, the uh, LMS test. He basically rang Rebellion, uh, Rebellion's Kalim, uh, and asked him, would you do that just for a laugh? Uh, basically to see if people actually bite and think it's Rebellion. They did that. It got plenty of traffic. He was having a chuckle about it. So, might there be some kind of marketing tie-in? Yes. Is he looking to what happens next with the Aris? Yes, he is. You might be surprised. Um, you remember that story we wrote about an Aris DPI? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there'll be a DPI, but watch this space. There is plenty going on at G-Drive. He's not messing about, and that is a very, very interesting story. Uh, let's have a quick look. Anthony Ghosh asks about what I know about Stefan Derek. This is the new general manager of the ACO. Nothing is the answer. What I do know is that Frederick Lenard, who he replaces, uh, certainly I think had, had a bit of a uh, parting of the ways in terms of strategy with the uh, the board of the ACO. You would therefore imagine that Stefan Derak is rather more aligned with Pierre Fion et al. Uh, the Quantumizer, which is a great uh, name, is there any suspicion of the increased grid size for Le Mans? Great news that we're going to have a record 62 cars at Le Mans, courtesy of some temporary uh, garages at the Module Sportif, the pit-in end of the uh, of the pit lane with the addition now of high class racing from Denmark and the second controversially excluded or reserve listed uh, uh, United Autosports car. Quantumizer asks, might that have been pushed by United doing a Ferrari F1 threatening to go somewhere else next season like SRO back sports cars if they didn't get a second place? No. Uh, I had a long chat with a number of people involved in that. I think there has been some negotiation. I'll be blunt. I think what's driven this are two factors. One is... I think 
they saw the potential with what happened at Sebring, that the teams were not impressed about the fact they were going to go into tented accommodation, but actually when we got there, were very impressed by what they found. That therefore now being, you know, something that was accepted as being a reasonably high quality solution becomes a potential solution. The second factor is very simple. It's commercial. The more cars are there, the more entry fees you get, the more money you collect in terms of the commercial side of things and in terms of the, the space you sell in hospitality and in the paddock. I think this comes down to a numbers game. And when you've got limited number of manufacturers, the reality is you then got to look at the numbers of private uh, private teams that you can get in there. I strongly suspect that the wider factor is the latter. They're the three I'm going to run through. What do you like to hear about next? Well, well, look at that. You're serving it up for my pleasure. You know, it would not be an episode of The Weekend Sports Cars presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers without an entry from Andrew Baca, our pal, the Baxter, who says, while we seem not to be headed towards a unified global top-level prototype regulation, are we instead heading towards a Group C and GTP scenario? Differing regulations, but broadly similar enough on pace, there can be cross-pollination between IMSA and the World Championship. What do you think, man? I think that's spot on, and I hope so. I hope we can get to the stage where, you know, at the death almost of this, that someone spots the opportunities that most certainly lie there. That's what lies at the, the end of this this thing I've been banging on about for a few weeks here, it is so close in terms of the performance. We've got to start now looking at why there is such a difference in terms of the budget. And it does seem to be, I think, two things. One is the budgetary side of things does seem to have been rather overstated. And the second part of it is that I think at times the budgets that we are told are happening on the DPI side may be somewhat understated at times. So I think these these things are rather closer than perhaps we're led to believe. We certainly know that the running cost of those cars across a full season in IMSA and in the WEC are not dramatically different. In terms of the WEC, it tends to be the logistical costs of a global championship. In the case of IMSA, it most certainly is driven by the fact that you've got three major endurance races beyond the regular kind of less full endurance, two hours, 40 minutes, 45 minutes uh, format. So the realities here are that there is certainly massive profit to be drawn in sporting and technical terms of something that is very much closer. I hope that out of what feels like something rather chaotic at the moment, we can see those waters clear and the white sands beneath. Um, And yes, I hope that's exactly where we get to. We all want, I think everybody wants a global solution. We just need to find a way to find it now. All right, my friend, we have, looking at the very informal clock that I tend to do a bad job of monitoring, we have eight or so minutes left. Do we continue down the Weck Aslam, Aco, Elms Road? Do we return to general and fun? Have we had enough fun in this episode? You no, 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 there's never enough fun. There's never enough fun. There's plenty of really good questions, by the way, that I might well just roll over into next week because we've not got a huge amount of international racing coming this weekend. So I'll, I've, I've been kind of uh, making a note of what we've not answered. So be assured that some of these will kind of hand over, hang over to next week. Let's have a quick look down at the kind of the fun side of things. 
You want to have a first crack at it? I'm going to let you have the first crack at it because I have a problem with crack. Wait a minute. <laughs> this would um, Here's one that you might know the answer to. Luke Filipponi might be a dumb question, but here it goes. Why sports car prototypes left or right and drive? Why not have the seating position in the middle like a single seater? Well, I think, I think it's by regulation, isn't it? It absolutely is by regulation. And manufacturers are certainly allowed to choose which which side they prefer to place their driver on. But yeah, uh, although a, a central cockpit standard might be fun, uh, but boy, um, I don't know uh, don't know if and when we would see such a thing actually implemented. But uh, interesting nonetheless. But yeah, it's strictly uh, how the rules happen to be written. I mean, we've had we've had cars in the past, notably, of course, the McLaren F1, which is in a central cockpit. Uh, the road car, obviously, having kind of seats either side of the central driving seat. And I think there's been one more recently, but uh, the the regulations do have to accommodate. Uh, exit and entry from both sides and that's been particularly problematic with the introduction of these kind of crash bars these bars across the middle of the cockpit which have to be hinged to allow the driver to get out on the non-driving side Uh, so those those bars are hinged and can move to allow rapid uh, exit but uh, yet there is a difference between some of those cars being left or right-hand drive and i'm trying to remember and failing horribly i'm afraid uh, a driver talking about exactly that exactly that at the weekend uh, and adapting to their previous drive and i've got a feeling that might have been an lmp3 car but I'll, I'll double check my my notes on that maybe bring that back moving to a car where they were used to being on the left-hand side and now on the right-hand side of the car I say on top of the roof. Now that would be fun. <laughs> Hashtag me personally. That's my vote. My my vote for pure and sheer stupidity. Uh, here, here's one. I don't know if it's fun, but it's interesting. I'll throw to you from Tom Welfie. It says, hi there, gentlemen. Do you feel that the sports car world would be much different had Lola not gone out of business? I seem to remember there being a number of ALMS teams with the intent of running Lola P2s. But due to Lola's financial situation, the cars didn't come to fruition. Huh. Uh, Lola. And maybe on a greater scope, Graham. I mean, they were what Delara is to international open wheel racing. They got something for everybody. Uh, Lola was more or less that option for prototypes, uh, really prior to the advent of LMP3. Where do you think we would be if they were still around today? Uh, I think it might be more accessible. Oddly, this this knits neatly in with something we had. Uh, we didn't quite get to, but I'll, I'll roll it in now from Adam Bowman, who was asking a quick general question. What happened to some of the more bespoke LMP2 cars the last generation, the BR01, the Domes 103? Lola fell victim to commercial pressures, simple as that. And it came down to um, the late and lamented Martin Martin Biriani, as he was popularly known in, in uh, certainly the UK end of the press room, uh, and deciding uh, for family reasons that he did not want to continue to put his own private funding in to keep that uh, that operation afloat. Bits of that operation still are afloat, and parts of its IP now sits, of course, with Multimatic, um, which is effectively its, its successor. Um, but the reality was that it was not commercially sustainable. 
uh, in a different world at a different time than it might have meant that with their business model, had their business model been more successful, that LMP2 racing might have been more accessible, might have been more affordable. Uh, Adam, the, the reasoning behind the Biara won the dome biting the bullet was those 2017 regulations, which you will recall, uh, named four licensed chassis suppliers. And there's other questions, by the way, that ask who we think might be uh, on the list next time around. I've got an inkling of at least one that might fall, and I've got an inkling of one that might actually come in, but I think those those Still questions mean. are going to be answered. Well, you know, I think a lot is going to be determined not by, not by what happens in the global LMP2 market, but what by what IMSA decide about DPI. Because there is you know, a galloping reality here that's, uh, whilst absolutely the the economies that come with the the global P2 uh, area things is that that is what is making, for instance, the Delara program sustainable. You know, we have one car left now in the ELMS, and at the moment we have one that is committed right now for next year's WEC, and that ain't going to cut it. I'm not sniffing very much. Um, intent from Delara in doing much to promote that product. I think they they know they've they've actually got a car that is not ultimately competitive. Uh, I think that we are going to see some changes there. I think it's going to be very interesting where they go uh, with that debate, whether or not we stay with four, whether it's five, whether it's three, um, and what happens with the IMSA DPI regulations. I cannot see them not accommodating the potential for having whatever LMP2 uh, becomes moving forward, because that has been a massive plus in helping those DPI figures to add up, to keep those budgets down to where you've got the success that DPI has been. But it is an interesting one. As for Lola, I mourn its loss. I genuinely do. You think about some of the little teams that actually made their way into and through racing, through those products, um, it's you know we've got a lot to thank uh, the Lola guys and particularly Martin Brain taking it over from Eric Broad at a time when Lola was struggling massively and we had some good times with it but yes I'm on its loss um, we're in a different world now uh, and I wait with bated breath probably more important in terms of the the depth of the racing that we love as to the decisions that are made about LMP2 than right now the decisions we've been talking about for most of the show about LMP1. I would say that knowing how we're looking at potential manufacturers and some that we've thrown out, any ru- any thoughts on the rumors that following the uh, return of Brabham with a BT62, uh, can you weigh in on the other rumor we've heard that there might be a new constructor that being Christoph Bushu with the Bushu BTFU. <laughs> well, I don't know if you spotted the tweets uh, midweek, but um, having been prompted to have a look, um, it was actually to do with the fact that Racing Engineering last year in the LMS team uh, announced their program for 2019, and they are moving to the NASCAR Wheel and Euro Series, so stock car racing in Europe for racing engineering. That prompted me to look at what the, who the driver names were in that series of 2019, and who did I find but Christopher Bucket, uh, who will be uh, part of the NASCAR Wheel and Euro Series in 2019. 
So I suspect he's been employed by the people that actually sell the spares, uh, because <laughs> my guess is that's going to be that's going to be hot racing there from Christoph. But um, yeah, the the Bushu P2 car could be quite interesting, couldn't it? Just think about that in this new wheel and NASCAR thing of his. It's an entirely new series to create hatred and division, right? I mean, (laughs) it's like terraforming a new planet uh, in so many ways. Graham, we'll grab two more and then bid farewell to this episode. We'll go to our pal Jacob Beam, who says, Second attempt here. Recently, I've had a discussion about Class 1 and its values and whether or not it's the best and most promising of current sports car classes out there. I argued that it is, at best, aspiring to that crown, as there are no series utilizing Class 1 in the Americas, make it, making, it a, uh, making it not a universal global formula. So the question is, are there any prospects of seeing Class 1 cars in the Americas in the near future? And if yes, which series would be most likely? Could Trans Am, for example, viably adopt that rule set as a next step on the way to retaining its former glory? Um, you might have the first part the second part i can tell you trans am there's no way in hell that's ever happened no, uh, no. ever 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 um i've just fallen out of time with some a fair amount of information i picked up at sebring and beyond about class one i think the answer here is i think it's a better prospect that it's going to be given the opportunity to show i think is the the main uh, point here yes bmw came forward with it and they had good reason to because of course they've already got investment in the ip uh, i don't expect it to be uh, the option the direction that imsa take for dpi gen 2 um, i don't expect that to be the case but i think it could do with another look i think it's got real potential there's some really interesting comments made by scott atherton at sebring both on the record and privately to myself about what lessons they can learn from the process that uh, that the itr the look after dtm and the class one regulations had taken that will be the subject i hope uh, of a piece for daily sports car in the coming weeks um I think when you look at things like common componentry, which certainly form a big part of the Class 1 regulations, that is quite an interesting uh, way to go. You clearly want to have as as good a blend as you can of things that reduce cost, but things that actually allow innovation and competition. Uh, you, You, MP, have been absolutely on the money for months and months and months on this one. Less spec more opportunity for people to show why they're special uh, but in the modern world we now live in i suspect the pressures drive us even further down the spec racer side of things it doesn't mean to say the racing's any worse we had some fantastic racing over the weekend for instance lmp3 uh, at paul ricard uh, but this is where we're talking about the absolutely top tier level and class one i think produces great racing sprint racing in germany endurance racing in japan um has it got other prospects yes it does will we see them come to fruition i'm not sure we will well speaking of will i have will to pose one more item and that's going to come in from our pal thomas who says I figured out easier and shorter names for all those hashtag Blancpain GT series. First of all, the uh, IGTC 
will be named the Rattel World Series. I love it. Um, we have what I guess is replacing the Blancpa World GT Americas will be called American Rattel Series. And Thomas says in brackets, the acronym ARS, A-R-S, lower case E. May or may not be a coincidence. Uh, we then have the uh, Rattel Endurance Series, the Rattel Sprint Series, and the Asian Rattel Series. I, I think he's on to something, Graham. I really do, because it, it, it's all working some form of three-letter acronym instead of 27-letter acronym. Ars uh, is kind of in there for at least two of them, both the American Rattel Series and Asian Rattel Series. Uh, we've got Endurance and Sprint covered off, and we have World. How is Thomas not employed as a branding and marketing director by our pal Stefan? It's amazing, isn't it, that he's missed out on the opportunity from me, Thomas. Look, first things first. I, I, one of the things I've always found quite interesting is why is Stefan Rattel known almost universally by his surname? It is an odd thing, isn't it? It's very often return, referred to. He even refers to himself nowadays when he talks about people talking about him as Rattel. Um, Number one, I think if you have the opportunity to sit down with Stefan Rattel, uh, you would be surprised. Um, number two is, I'll say again what I've said a million times before, we simply wouldn't be standing having this conversation on opposite sides of the Atlantic were it not for Stefan Rattel. Okay? He's not Beelzebub. He's not the devil. Um, there are things about the uh, form of racing that he now uh, promotes across the world. What about uh, Beelzebub? Rattel's above <laughs> seems like a really awesome cartoon and t-shirt. However, however, the one area where if I had the opportunity and I recently took the opportunity to feed into um, the uh, the SRO uh, thought process, um, yes, I think the naming of championships has got a little out of control. I'll tell you how out of control it got. It got out of control to the degree where there was uh, an exchange between myself and his senior PR person about the fact that one or two of the things we had on the Daily Sports Car website were not up to date. Um, I fed back, there is a reality here that when you put something in that is the Blompan World uh, hang on, the Blompan World Challenge America, it's just too long. Oh, sorry, World, sorry, GT World Challenge America. I knew I was missing something. And actually, when I looked at my website while we were having that conversation, I realized that two of the championships that we'd actually got there correctly had resulted by us putting the correct name into our, uh, into our website – uh, that it had effectively broken it because they were too long and it meant that something that should have been sitting in a nice, neat box now sat in the middle of the story below it when you had the kind of drop-down. The reality here is it's not just uh, the ACO. It is when we get to other events. I habitually, by the way, will simply not write in a story when we've got naming sponsors, presenting sponsors, etc., etc., etc. And there's two reasons, of uh, three reasons for that. One is... Guys, I haven't got the time, nor the energy, nor the inclination. Two is, those people are not paying me money. It is the 12 hours of Sebring. It will always be the 12 hours of Sebring. Um, and three is, they look ridiculous. I'm terribly sorry, but the, you know, um, the, the, the names that we are asked to describe some of these names, as I'm delighted that it puts dollars into pockets and brings activation to the race meetings but i'm terribly sorry i as the editor of delhi sports car nor 
the readers of Daily Sports Cup, we're not interested in having the first two lines of our story occupied by the name of the race. It's ridiculous. And, you know, I get it. I am supportive of the drive to actually drive that commercial activity, but I'm afraid I'm not going to be supporting that in general beyond maybe one mention throughout the thousands of words of copy that we produce about those race meetings. We'll find other ways to recognize the efforts of those sponsors. I get it. I mean, I think the reality is they've just got to find a better way of doing this uh, because if they don't find a better way of doing this, we're either going to use an acronym, in which case the sponsors can be lost anyway, or we're going to find a way of shortening the titles of those series. I, like you, Marshall, have genuinely, genuinely, no, all joking aside. I like aside, you too, Graham. Yes, I know. Been genuinely been confused as to what the hell they're actually called. It's not just the GT World Challenge stuff, which actually does have some common sense behind it when you think about that. But when we've got to the stage now where what used to be called the Blompan GT Endurance Cup series or whatever, and the Blompan GT Sprint series, which had a common um, identity, now have two completely separate identities with the Blompan Endurance Cup or series, whatever it's called, and now uh, GT World Challenge Europe. Then we've got to the stage where I'm kind of thinking, someone lost the plot here? Or have we got to the stage where you're layering one plan on top of another one? I sort of think they need to be locked in a room for a, for a week or so and come out with a better better answer here. It's, it certainly seems that decisions have been made on the back of other decisions, on the back of other decisions. We've got a hell of a lot of series. And if I, as the editor of the Daily Sports Car, that cover this for a living, have been confused by that, what chance have the fans got? A, I love the fact that we got you on two soapboxes well, hey. presented by Mobile One. Uh, the Mobile One <laughs> 12 minutes of soapbox. Uh, there we go. Um, I love it. I love it. I mean, and here's the other thing, too. Part of me is convinced, Graham, that some someone, probably not Stefan, but someone at the SRO said, let's see how many words we can get these idiots to type in every <laughs> report and you know like i think there's just a little bit of 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 a social experiment and also having fun at our expense of you know possibly well maybe they could get a naming right sponsor for the name of the series so wouldn't that be amazing so truly they found a sponsor for just the name of the series itself. So not only do we have Blanc Pond, but we have Blanc Pond presented by, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, maybe that would just be uh, all kinds of fun here. So anyways. It's, a, it's, all, part, it's all part of the fun and games. I mean, we can all laugh at, you know, the, um, what was it, the LMS's presenting cheese, Yancey's Fancy, a real thing, by the way. Uh, we can all have a laugh at that. I mean, I'll happily kind of pop that into a kind of notebook. But there is a reality here is there is a massive difference between what is going to be activation at a race meeting and what actually is a legitimate part of the reporting of that event. And I think actually sometimes the series management, uh, and it's just about every series is guilty of this, need to just get a little bit real about this and, yeah, understand that sometimes shortening that for effect is, is a real thing. All right. Well, for the effect of shortening this episode, 
we're going to say farewell. We're also going to say, as we try to do each week, if we did not get to your question and you would like it answered for sure, please send it through again. Sometimes it takes a third. Once or twice it's taken a fourth. But yes, we certainly appreciate you're taking the time to send in questions in this 90-minute format. Sometimes we struggle to get to all of them. So if you want it answered, send it in again, and we will indeed get to it. I am Marshall Pruitt. That is the delightful soapbox-prone Graham Goodwin, and I love it when you're on the boil, mate. We need to say thank you once more to our awesome, awesome friends and partners at the Justice Brothers, who gave me a delightful coat last weekend at Long Beach, by the way. Uh, And also to our awesome friends at Cooper Tires, who are working on something really cool for us as well, knowing that we are a little over two weeks away from celebrating the third anniversary of our little Marshall Pruitt podcast here. So thanks to both of them. Thanks to you, the entire entire DailySportsCar.com crew. Uh, We're going to have to spank Ryan Kish, though, because uh, he didn't serve up the questions as he was supposed to. So it might be 50 push-ups or some other kind of a penalty. But other than that, Graham... (laughs) Thank you for taking your time this week. Thank you, dear listeners, for being who you are and sending in these great questions that we truly, truly enjoy. And other than that, we will speak to you early next week here on the Weekend Sports Cars.